Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, everyone. This is Terry Hutchinson for the Interpreter Radio broadcast on Sunday night. Uh, I've got John Gee, my co-host, and Kevin Christensen with me. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Good evening. And I want to welcome you all to our broadcast this evening. We are brought to you by the Interpreter Foundation, which, as we've heard said many times, is a a very broad-based operation. It's a 50C3 corporation. Uh, we're always looking for donations for our projects, and uh, I think you'll find that the money's been well spent. We promoted the Witnesses movie, produced it, produced the Witnesses docudrama. Every Saturday night, there is a new internet clip. Uh, it's a vision that uh, gets people to know more about all of the Witnesses to the Book of Mormon, not just the three and not even the eight, and helps us understand more about church history. The next project that the Interpreter Foundation, like this, they'll, they'll be sponsoring is called Six Days in August, and it's about the succession of uh, Brigham Young and the Council of the Twelve when Joseph Smith was martyred back in 1844. So that one is a few years out. But in the meantime, if you go to the Interpreter website, you will find there are all kinds of things that are available for you. There's a weekly article, which we generally discuss here on the program. There are several books. There are several uh, conferences. So we want to take a minute and thank a couple of our sponsors. One of them is LDSagents.com, which is a group of about 3,000 2,000 or 3,000 agents, real estate agents, who can help you navigate the difficult market right now. Some people are waiting to buy. Some people are trying to sell. People are worried about interest rates. They're worried about inflation. They're worried about you know the value of their home. And then, of course, they have to relocate for various reasons. Well, give the folks at LDSagents.com a look because they know the areas you're going to, they know the areas you live in, they share your values, and they also can give you information about the things that are interesting to you and that you need to know to benefit yourselves and your family. So we want to thank them. We also have something that we've been working on and was just announced recently, and that is an interpreter cruise to sacred sites in Turkey which is actually a lot of where the New Testament was produced. You've got Ephesus. uh, You've got Patmos. Patmos, uh, the Colossians, the Galatians are all written to people in Asia Minor in Turkey. You know, um, I have received my preliminary version for review of the BYU New Testament commentary on Ephesians. I have been to Ephesus. I don't travel widely as perhaps John and some others, but Ephesus was a real highlight for me. And one of the things that Professor Brown, who said said he went there, is he was on a mission in Turkey when he decided to write this commentary. Thought, oh, this will be great. I'm in Ephesus and everything. Apparently, uh, the the visits to the site itself were not as... uh, determinative of what he wrote, but that should be out about the time of December. But if you're interested, uh, contact Bountiful Travel 
and try and get there as soon as possible. This is an interpreter-led and sponsored uh, travel group. Uh, I believe that it's filling up fast. It's filling up fast is what they say. And Dan Peterson, I understand, is going. And you're going to be spending a long time in Turkey and seeing a lot of fascinating, beautiful, and interesting things. So if you've got the inclination, it'll be next October in 2023. So I would encourage you to go to Bountiful Travel, look that up. Just go on the website, look for the Turkey Bible Tour. Um, or you can contact, you can look that up through the interpreter website. Now, there's another thing that's going on from Interpreter Foundation, and uh, Kevin's gonna, probably going to pass out before I get done talking here. But uh, we have the, I, I believe it's the sixth Interpreter Matthew B. Brown Memorial Conference, the 2022 Temple on Mount Zion Conference. Uh, keynote speakers are going to be Margaret Barker, C. Wilford Griggs, and Samuel Zinner. Some of those will be in person. Some of those will be um, virtual. It's November 4th and 5th. Now, the presentation I understand from Professor Griggs on November 4th is a virtual presentation. So uh, the rest of it will be, and I think it's at a chapel in Orem. And so you'll want to go to the website and look up that address. But the... uh, the presentation, I think also you'll be able to access the conference virtually as well. And those are always great. The Interpreter Foundation uh, eventually gathers the papers up into a book, but that usually takes a couple of years. And uh, I have yet to be disappointed by any of those presentations. So we'd encourage you to visit that November 4th and 5th. That's coming up just less than a month. In fact, I think it's four weeks from yesterday. It's coming up quick. <laughs> John is a literalist, obviously. No, it's it's. Um, <laughs> Are you presenting this time? I, no, but I'm chairing so. a session. Oh, you're chairing a session. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm presenting at another conference that day too, so I'm going to be a uh-huh. little bit uh, um, out of sorts. <laughs> well, speaking of conferences, we had general conference last week, and then this weekend we had a couple of conflicting conferences. One of them was up in Salt Lake. Uh, I was able to to go to that briefly. It's called the Restore Conference, sponsored by the Faith Matters Organization. Now, I didn't attend any of the presentations, but I was able to drop by and just kind of stick my head in and see what was going on. And uh, and then uh, Kevin brought to my attention that there was another conference this weekend. Kevin, you want to tell us a little about that? Uh, well, I thought it was the, the Restore Conference was the one I was thinking of. The, no, there's the one on the Book of Mormon, uh, not the Book of Mormon Academy. Oh, 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 that's right, that's right, that's right. Um, shoot, <laughs> the one up in Logan. Yeah. Let's see if I can find my information on that one. Of course, I just sent it to you. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, oh, where is it? I should look at my, look at my emails for it. But yeah, there's another yeah Book of Mormon Studies Association conference program there. That's right. And yeah, you and that was uh, the sixth and seventh, and also Saturday day. So they they ran for three days and had a number of different people talking about it. Well, I would um, have liked to see the the last presentation, which was from David Holland. Uh, uh, you know, there there were two or three in that group that um, really interested me, and then there were a lot of them that were. Let's just say a little more on the obscure side. 
yeah, that's um, the group that runs that um, has um, some interesting tastes in what they want to uh, talk about. <clears throat> They're not one of these groups that gets hung up on, say, geography. Um, so they're, they're not interested in geographical or historical questions at all. Um, but they have particular tastes when it comes well, to it, it what varies they... varies like, kind of like with the, uh, the, uh, Mormon theology group. Collection. Well, it's the same people. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, I, I will tell you that in the first day, Thursday, they had, uh, they had Robin William Jen, Robin Jensen, I believe, discussing the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, and he was followed by uh, Saunders. I think his first name is Charles, and he's the one that wrote the book on the 1920 edition of the Book of Mormon, which it, I have to tell you guys, and we talked about it a little on the program, is just a fascinating uh, thing to me. To and it's about the physical edition, so. He's he when 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 Saunders writes, he doesn't talk about the text per se. He doesn't talk about the ideas or the you know whether it's the doctrine or anything else. He's talking about the physical book, the binding, the sewing, the paper, where it was printed, and I you know I never think about these things. And I was talking to somebody just a couple of days ago about this. The pioneers, we talk about how the Book of Mormon flooded the earth and how the Book of Mormon went around. But wait a minute. They left Nauvoo and they came here. There was nothing. I mean nothing when they came to Salt Lake. And then all of a sudden these Book of Mormons keep popping up and circulating around the world. Where did they come from? And for, for many years, the most of the church publications were published in England. Yeah. Well, the like Book the Journal of, Mormons, of the Book of Mor- yeah, the Journal of Discourses, but the Book of Mormon apparently that was circulating primarily was the second edition from England, and uh, the third edition that had been changed by Joseph Smith in 1840 uh, that hardly made it anywhere because by the time Joseph Smith was done with that, Nauvoo they'd left Nauvoo and they didn't really have anywhere to print it for a while, no. and, and eventually they were printing the they. they they were printing them at these big companies in the Midwest. I think there was one in St. Louis. There's one in Chicago. And Saunders' book just talks about this process. And I, I have to tell you, it's not available electronically. It's published by Greg Coford Books. It's in a beautiful binding and hardback, but it is a bit expensive for people. I got to tell you, it's a great gift for somebody who loves books or who is curious about this kind of thing. And he talks about the committee who, you know, with James Talmadge and and the other brethren on it and from 1920 who changed it. The 12 met together in a committee and they made specific recommendations about changes to the text. They used the, re, uh, the re-chaptering that had been done by Orson Pratt back in 1876. I mean, I, I can't say enough about that. I wish I had been able to be at that presentation in spite of maybe being happy to miss some of the others. Well, well you know, it's, it's most conferences are a mixed bag. You get um, 
and some of it's a matter of taste. I remember um, hearing one person's evaluation of a collection, and they said, well, this is all really good except for this um, particular piece. And I thought, that's the one I bought the book for. Yeah, the rest of it I think is eh, but this one is fantastic, and they did, didn't it, it really think of it. It's a matter so, of taste. It's like I and I talk about that on my book program all the time. There's a collection of short stories, or there's a collection of articles, and it's a broad range. So not everything is going to appeal to everyone. And 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 these uh, conferences are actually harder to put together when you've got a specific theme and you want to make sure that all the theme is covered because finding scholars who are willing to go outside of their comfort zone and cover the 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 topic assigned is really hard it's um Normally described as herding cats. <laughs> it sounds like one of our school board meetings, but that's another story. Yeah, well, those yeah. it. So there are. It's interesting that they were scheduled at the same time, mm-hmm. um, because there's an overlap in interest groups there. Yeah. Well, Kevin, tell us a little about the Restore Conference. What What's your understanding about that? Okay. Well, it looks like, yeah, October 7th, 8th, it's, they're saying, um, uh, they're, they're like their website thing here says, Restore Hope, Restore Curiosity, Restore Connection, Restore You. And so they had it at the Salt Palace for two days, and they had a bunch of interesting speakers, you know, including some people I know of, like uh, Terrell Givens and Patrick Mason and uh, Terrell Thurston and Fiona Givens and uh, Ty Mansfield and... Uh, a few others and people whose names I haven't heard, but it's um, it includes musical performances and uh, by a number of different groups and people talking talking on looks like a, a range of topics. Kind of I would to, have been uh, curious to hear the one on the Psalm of Nephi put to music. I I can't remember who did yeah. that. Oh yeah, but yeah, just uh, it's. I mean the one. One really good thing is, is that even with, with these things happening at the same time, it just shows that that there's interest in in looking at the in our faith and our scriptures from a number of perspectives. And like you know, there the are people that and with different tastes and interests and at different stages in their spiritual development and growth. So I think that that there is stuff around here so that people can kind of find their way along where they are to find somebody that you know will speak to their soul and. And tickle their interests and tickle their their uh, you know desire to learn more because it's just it's get something at the right time in your life you know in my case it was uh, you know a member in Kendall England handed me a copy of Nibley's uh, an approach to the Book of Mormon you know which I much later found out was the 1957 Priesthood Manual and you know the impact just reading that book had on me and just kind of woke me up to the idea that there was something a lot more interesting going on than I could get in, in uh, you know, just attending the conventional meetings. But that still, as far as I'm concerned, it is through the church, you know, that it's because it's not just the institutional church, it's the gathering, it's the saints. And if they're all committing their, you know, their, their talents and their, uh, and this is the kind of thing that can can come out from people, and it's worth taking a listen to. And yeah, you know, I, I was going to ask you uh, both, have you 
I, I have this impression, but I want to know if, if you guys feel the same. Do you feel like there's more and more of these type of groups with a lot more variety? It's kind of like the Come Follow Me podcast. I mean, we do one here for Interpreter, but there are multiples that have, you know, a wide audience. And some of them, and they're all at different levels. Uh, to me, yeah. that's a good thing. It means that everyone is seeking to know more about the scriptures or about the Book of Mormon. I mean, there's a new Book of Mormon Academy book that just came out. I think it's called, uh, it's called They Shall Grow Together. And in other words, it's a collection of articles about how the Bible and Book of Mormon uh, are intertwined. I, I'm in the middle of reading one, the documentary hypothesis in the Book of Mormon by Avram Shannon. And so it's, uh, you know, the, there's some, there's some, like John said, it's a wide variety and not, it doesn't appeal to everyone. But maybe there's something in them that will grab someone who needs it. Yeah, that's certainly possible. That's... Um, and, you know, the, the approach varies, the quality varies, but in almost any, uh, you can say the same thing about interpreter, right? So, um, there's a wide variety of this material, what, uh, President Oaks called alternate voices and, um, it as long as you realize that this isn't that alternate voices aren't the church and there are some things that they're good at and some things that they're not good at but as long as we don't confuse them for the voice of the church uh, then you can pick what is useful for you. I had an experience with a with a brother who um, had essentially stopped believing and um, was very confused. And uh, he was asked by our stake president to come and meet with me. He was very interested in the ancient temple. Uh, I introduced he he knew a little about Margaret Barker and some of the others, and I introduced him to Matt Brown's work. And over the course of about a year and a half, uh, he did his own studying and eventually came to uh, back to to a testimony and had some profoundly powerful experiences. That material that he found is is it wasn't as you said, John. It, it wasn't the words of the prophets and the apostles. But it was something that got him going in the right direction until he got back there. Yeah, and and that's what we hope, and I think that's what the intention of a uh, lot of a right, lot of uh, us look, are. And and you know we are successful in varying degrees at it. I think, but uh, as as we're going to discuss in our next hour when we talk about prophets specifically, um, I think it's important to keep the words of the prophets and the apostles in mind. And so whatever of these conferences or articles or anything that we read, we ultimately need to keep that in mind that if it's taking us away from the words of the modern prophets and apostles, 
that's something that shouldn't be happening. Uh, it, it's something that we have to be able to exercise discernment, but it's, um, you know, going, if you want to go to President Oaks's talk on all alternate voices, um, he get, lays out the guidance there. And, uh, and so I would hesitate to, uh, try to, um, to improve, uh, improve on, on it, yes. <laughs> um, it's uh, the 1989 April General Conference that he gave this. And as he says, some alternate voices are those of well-motivated men and women who are merely trying to serve their brothers and sisters and further the cause of Zion. Uh, the efforts fit within the Lord's teaching that his servant should not have to be commanded in all things, but should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness. Jason just notes that other alternate voices are pursuing selfish personal interests. And then there are alternate voices whose avowed or secret object is to deceive and devour the flock. And so uh, those are the ones that he lays out. And so just be aware of that there are those out there, and uh, you might want to Use some discernment to figure out which category an alternate mm -hmm. voice fits in. And um, I can't see any better way to express that than that President Oaks has already done. Well, all I can say is there are more conferences and that'll be upcoming and more material and articles and as i said i just think it's increasing Do yeah you, don't you i i think it's hard to keep that, up with, with that yeah yeah well it, it's well especially when you're you know living far away from the center but there's some of these that i you know kind of i've heard of some of the people and read the work of some of the scholars but i hadn't you know until just i spent a couple of days uh, looking up at this restore group and, and watched a couple of their videos, and it was quite interesting. I watched uh, an, an interview between uh, Terrell Givens and Joe Spencer, and then we started listening to one with Steve Young. So there's that kind of thing that's that's very interesting, and uh, and then of course the Matthew Brown one coming up, and uh, I've, there's been some really impressive work done there, and uh, I can second the notion that that's that's the kind of thing that. I think of as, as really the good stuff that opens up my mind and tells me things that I couldn't figure out on my own. Well, speaking of and, that, uh, um, Jeff Bradshaw is doing a virtual fireside right now on oh. his Freemasonry and the Temple Ordinances book. Um, oh, cool. And he's from Interpreter. It's published by Interpreter. We promote things from Interpreter, but we think you should look for that after this broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's... It's a sign of how multifaceted we've become that we're stepping on our own toes. Well, I, I yeah, and, and getting to that, um, at the Restore Conference, they were selling a copy of the Dictionary of Proper Names and Foreign Words in the Book of Mormon, published by Interpreter Foundation. 
And it's uh, put together by four individuals, one of whom is sitting in studio with us. <laughs> uh, we have Stephen Ricks, Paul Y. Hoskinson, uh, Robert Smith, and John Gee. And this is a, a fascinating project. Um, I'm, I'm working on it for, for a review of this book for something else. But, uh, John, tell us a little about the history of this and really what it is. Okay, so Book of Mormon Onomasticon project started. Okay, back, stop, freeze. Onomasticon. Onomasticon. That's how it was sent to me, and I thought, what in the world is this? Onomasticon <laughs> just, so onoma is the Greek term for name. So onomasticon is a collection of names. Uh, so they started this project, um, I think, in some ways, independently, John Twetness and Bob Smith uh, both started it in the 60s, in the late 60s, separate strands. And then in the 70s, uh, Paul Hoskison also uh, worked on it. And... And these were independent efforts and were joined together. Um, and for – it started – so in 2000s, uh, Stephen Ricks, who had long had an interest in this material as well. So Paul was – Hoskinson was working on it and had managed to get uh, Bob Smith and John Twetness's notes and then – well, Twetness published this. I mean, he, he published it in the Encyclopedia of Hebrew Language. He published some 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 of Bill, his material, of, uh, some of it in 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 a in a mainstream mainstream Jewish non, yes uh, work on uh, on Jewish names. They had a chapter on names in the Book of Mormon, and he's not the only one. So uh, mm -hmm. there is a book that I understand is in press. Um, with Rutledge, uh, that will also be on, and this is on a little wider on, uh, naming practices among Latter day Saints, including, um, there are four pieces on Book of Mormon names. Oh, okay. Uh, written by John Twetness, Stephen Ricks, myself, and, uh, Matt Bowen. Oh, okay. So, uh, and this is, but it also has um, things on on Latter-day Saint modern Latter-day Saint naming practices, such as Hillary was a really popular name until 1992 <laughs> um, among Latter-day Saints, and then just suddenly it dropped off the face of the earth. Uh, so there, there's some a lot of I interesting things uh, on that, um, but the this. Dictionary of Book of Mormon Names. Uh, so about 2000 or so, Stephen Rex decided that we needed to get moving on this. And so we had these weekly meetings um, with um, – uh, you had, um, of course, uh, by that time, John Twetna's – let's see – I guess it really started going full throttle about 2008, which is just after John Twetness retired and moved away. But we had Bob Smith and and Paul Hoskison and Stephen and myself uh, 
getting together once a week and hashing out one or two names per session. So you had a, you had a set time you'd all get together and you'd block that out. We'd block it out and we'd spend about For, an hour to two hours okay. uh, every week running through uh, various Book of Mormon names and discussing uh the various alternatives that had been proposed you so we'd gathered together all the suggestions of Hugh Nibley. Uh another person who had been brought on earlier is Joanne Hackett, whose name may not be familiar to people to our listeners, so she is not a member of the church and she is a Hebrew scholar who just recently retired from University of Texas. And this was before she got a, a job, and so she worked on uh, – she was paid to work on Book of Mormon names and came up with a number of really interesting Hebrew suggestions. She lived in the area? She lived in Provo? I I don't know how the arrangement worked. This is before, this is before I was brought in. But I know wow. I've seen her material, and I think we give her credit for mm-hmm. all of her suggestions. Uh, we try to give a little history of that. We've – We've brought in, uh, when it comes to pronunciation, we have all of the uh, Deseret Alphabet transcriptions. Well, that was going to be a follow-up is what's that doing in there? I saw that. And well, I that thought, tells why? you why, because that tells you how the early saints pronounced it. Now, they may not have the correct pronunciation, but that goes back about as early as we can get to how the saints were pronouncing these names, and that's why it's included. Um we were Stephen was going to put all of these uh just list all our names alphabetically mm-hmm. and I said, "Well, that's really nice, but my name comes first, and I did the least work on this. <laughs> you really ought to have to to arrange these names differently and uh so we all worked on it. It's really hard to disentangle who did what. I have a, there are certain suggestions in there that are mine, um, and there are other suggestions where um, I was the one saying, "I don't think this actually works." <laughs> well, and so I, I, so they have you you have they have a list of the suggestions that have been made. Uh, we try to to note etymologies where those are possible. Whether they're possible on Jaredite names is an open question. And then we look at also, um, I was a big stickler on this, uh, where the name is actually attested. For example, Gidgadoni is attested as an actual name. And it's not, but no one knows what it means. Even the people who looked at the attestation said, kind of threw up their hands and said, yeah, we can't make sense of what this name means, but, you know, it's there. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've listed out all of those. <clears throat> so if there is a foreign word like Liahona or a name that's in there, we have them. We have the list of, of the different people who bore that name. We have, uh, references. Um, we've cited our sources on it, and yeah, uh, and and there's a control to it. I've noticed. So yeah. so some of it is pretty. You're you're pretty certain, and some of it is well, maybe. Some maybe of it's and very we tentative. we thought that it was 
honest that way. And um, there are lots of places where the committee didn't agree. And so you get the range of viewpoints in the committee and the discussions of the strengths and the weaknesses of the various proposals. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's important on a lot of these names that where there isn't a consensus that you know the range of possibilities and uh, and there are occasionally things in there where people so and so has proposed this and it doesn't work because of these reasons uh, we'll we try to lay all of that out um, and this has been combed over for many times for many years um, and so in some ways it's a state of where things are uh, unfortunately as this was going to press I ran into things like epigraphic South Arabic attestations of Zoram and uh, other things that aren't included in there because this is yeah, but there will likely be another. Day. This is a, this is a where the question is right mm-hmm. now. But it, this has been a long project. It's taken fifty years to more than fifty years to get into print. Well, you know, and, and I think it's we were talking a minute ago about you know all the conferences and all the material that keeps coming out and all the different variations of come follow me information for Latter-day Saints and for people that want to know more, this is another tool. Yeah, but this is. Is a, this is something different. So, you know, about a dozen years ago, I started really upping my game in terms of studying ancient sources or Hebrew sources or whatever. I'm n- Translations, not, right, not right. the real. But um, one of the things that's a very common uh, definition is the DDD. Which is the dictionary of deities and demons? Demons, which and has some pro- which I can already show in certain cases is out of date. Well, they've done a second edition, so no, I'm talking the second edition's already well, yeah, out of date. I'm sure, but, but uh, this is saying, the sort of thing it's you the do. The kind it. of thing that in that that has is available to us in biblical studies uh, that you have these dictionaries and they have specialties. The dictionary of you know, uh, these names, the dictionary of this or the dictionary of its reception or the dictionary of, you know, just, just yeah, all kinds of things. And this seems to be another element for Book of Mormon studies. That's, it is. It's something that is useful. And particularly if you're looking at um, – so he wasn't involved in this uh, per se, but Matt Bowen's work uh, you is – a lot of it is showing how – some of the names that show up in the Book of Mormon that they are aware of the of the meaning or at least the folk etymology of the name and play off of it. So they mm-hmm. talk about Alma the Elder being a young man and that plays off of the meaning of Alma which is young man. And so there's a there's an acknowledgement of that in the Book of Mormon um, now, there, there are two sort of elements to this. One of them is you wonder, how on earth did Joseph Smith know to put that in since it took 150, almost 200 years for, for somebody scholars to, to discover it? Yeah. Um, and so that's – but as you're reading through Bowen's work, then you can 
refer to this and see what the range of interpretations are. Well, and I was going to mention Matt Bowen's work. Matt is kind of absent from this, but that's probably because he came on the scene a little later. But Interpreter has done a book from him. It's available on the Interpreter website. It's called Name is Keyword. And it's called uh, Collected Essays on Onomastic Wordplay, which John defined for us earlier, and The Temple in Mormon Scripture. And, uh, you know, actually... And Matt even did his an latest just Friday, just yes. Friday, yeah. <laughs> he just did oh, a new one. So he's, he's, he's the man never yeah. stops. I mean, is he the new Noel Reynolds or what? Well, um, we don't. Want I don't know. No, actually, big. he no, does it, live in Hawaii, which helps him. But well, well, the thing is, and he's one of our hosts. Yeah, he's uh, a, he's one of the hosts. other radio hosts. So, um, actually, if you look at Noel Reynolds work um and you look at the dates on it um there's been an upswing in his productivity mm-hmm. in later years um he's got about 50 different articles on the book of mormon published from everywhere from the scottish journal of theology um to interpreter and things like uh, religious educator BYU studies um, in a wide variety of places, and um, but his productivity has really increased in the last decade or so, and that's also the same time when Matt Bowen has been cranking things out. So, if you look at the active Book of Mormon researchers, I would say that. Currently, the f- the one four I would put on the top is producing the most interesting, and that's going to be for me. But the most interesting and um, insightful material in the Book of Mormon, I would say, for the last ten years, I would say it's Noel Reynolds, Matt Bowen, Royal Skousen, and Stan Carmack, mm-hmm. and they have been prolific and very insightful. Yeah. So, Kevin, tell us a little about Matt's article this week, because you were mentioning that as we were preparing for the show. Oh, yeah. Just um, let me get back to Let me find the title of it here. Let's, let's see. Uh, journal articles. Journal home. I'll get back here and get my focus. Coming, coming, coming. Yeah, it's... it's uh, Unto the taking away of their stumbling blocks, the taking away and keeping back of plain and precious things and their restoration in First Nephi. Like he says here in his, uh, he's been talking about the tree of life and uh, the uh, great and abominable church. And this is, you know, stories that we're familiar with. But what Bowen's work kind of brings in is, is that uh, he's the iterative language of Taking away and keeping back bears strong resemblance to the prohibitions of Deuteronomic canon formula tests in Deuteronomy, and it also attaches the ideological meanings attached to the name Joseph in Genesis 30, 20 to 24, in terms of taking away and adding. So, he's, an example in the abstract is Nephi's prophecies of scripture and gospel restoration on account of which the Gentiles shall know more, and then the Hebrew behind that would be. Yosef uh, Ad brought down into captivity, and the house of Israel shall no more. And then he could you know that there be confounded after they were restored. So he's seeing he's seeing wordplay uh, in, in etymologies of 
just the name Joseph about both uh, loss and restoration. You know, uh, no more be confounded, neither be scattered. So he he adds, you know, interesting levels of meaning behind the English that we have, but in strongly suggesting that there is, you know, a, a real Hebrew stuff going on underneath this. That it takes uh, it takes this kind of searching and pondering to to weed out and. Uh, Bowen has been doing this kind of thing for a long time, and it's, you know every time it's uh, every one of those articles that I've read has you know, there's this sense of of uh, you know it's not adding this third dimension to the text that we read that that we can see and feel things going on that that you know, otherwise you, you just pass over without a thought. So it, it's it's a gift to read this kind of thing. Well, and he's done eight articles in Interpreter this year. I mean, yeah, he's amazingly productive, and they're not just little toss-offs. I mean, something that I would do, yeah, no problem. This is, I mean, first of all, just getting through the interpreter process, as both of you know, is yeah pretty arduous. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he there's eight of them this year. That's almost a, a, the size of a regular book. Uh, yeah, his is um, as I say, he is. If you look at at some of those people who I listed, their the volume of their output and its quality are astounding, and so uh, and and you can see why he's they've already gathered some of his stuff and put it in a book, but they probably have enough for another one yeah. by now. Yeah. Or um, well, and we still wait for they the might Noel have Reynolds enough for gathering, two. but mm, it's not happening yet. Uh, you know, you have to talk to him about that. <laughs> well, we've tried. <laughs> he just keeps his head down and keeps grinding out the work. Yeah, um, the Book of Mormon is a rich. Um, I think uh, Elder Maxwell would probably say an exhaustible uh, source. Of, of material and information, and I notice a distinct difference between those who take the time to try to understand the context. So with Royal Scouse and Stan Carmack, it's the linguistic context of the modern Book of Mormon uh, with Matt Bowen and Noel Reynolds, it's more the ancient context that looking at that um, and treating it as a real history, I think, makes a difference in understanding and being able to convey that understanding of the Mormon. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, John, because this year you have undertaken something you haven't done before, and that's teaching a Book of Mormon course at BYU. Well, I was asked. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say that you weren't, but um, I, I, you know, and it used to be, I think, that in 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 places like Columbia and other places, they would teach a great books course, and they would just have professors come in and teach it from other disciplines. And I would hope they're doing that at BYU with the Book of Mormon to well, a certain extent. Here's the the situation: is for years they used to have what they call transfer faculty at BYU, and these are faculty from other departments who would come in to, uh, to teach, usually Book of Mormon, um, 
in in the Department of Ancient Scripture. One of those transfer faculties years ago was uh, uh, an obscure person you might have heard of um, named Jeffrey Holland. Um, <laughs> that's an example. And Chauncey Riddle used to do that. Um, oh, King. I don't know if Arthur Henry King did one of those, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, I, I never got to take Hugh Nibley's Book of Mormon because he was teaching Pearl of Great Price when I was there. And then in 1988, he started doing Book of Mormon again. I mean, thankfully, we have the YouTubes and the we have collections the from farms yeah. and the transcripts because, you know, those of us who took a Nibley class was And it, it took him four semesters to get through the Book of Mormon. Um, <laughs> they probably held a gun to his head to get him to do it, too. Um, well, the uh, thing is, Nibley loved the Book of Mormon. He also oh, yeah. loved the Pearl of Great Price. So. Um, and the interesting thing is the entire time that you and I were at BYU, Nibley was retired. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And so he's teaching this in retirement. Uh, so they, they have these, Noel Reynolds used to teach, uh, Book of Mormon Mm -hmm. as a transfer faculty and and many other people as well. Uh, that program, uh, became a little less used over time and, uh, their, they may be starting it up again. I something of a test case. Um, after I botched this class, maybe they'll they'll just let the well, program you, die. You but. mentioned that there was something different you were doing that you were teaching it a bit differently now than you would have say several years ago. Well, I'm teaching it differently now in in large. So three years ago, the first presidency came out with uh, a statement which was sent to all church education institutions called Strengthening Religious Education. And this document outlines what they expect to uh, the students to come out of the course with. And uh, I wouldn't have taught it the way I'm teaching it now five years ago before this document came out because I'm trying to match what they ask, what the the results they want, and try to sit and think, well, how do we go about getting those results? So let me tell you what the First Presidency expects. Now, this may not apply to my class because I'm not uh, up to their caliber, but this is what they want out of all religion courses at all institutions in the church education system, whether it's BYU-Hawaii or BYU-BYU-Idaho, Ensign College, um, or seminaries and institute classes. The first is the student should come out with a testimony of God the Father, Jesus Christ, his atonement, um, the restoration of the gospel in these latter days. The second thing is they want them to come out with a lifelong commitment to keep their covenants and to remain faithful. And the third thing they want is for all the students to be able to answer questions, resolve doubts, respond with faith, and be ready to always give an answer to whatever – to when anyone asks a reason for the hope that is within them in whatever circumstances they face in life. Uh, That's a 
daunting task. You know, as a professor, I wonder, um, how am I going to test them on their lifelong commitment in a one-semester course? <laughs> um, so this does come with its challenges, and uh-huh. um, and it is has changed the way that I have the approach I've taken to the course than I would have taken five years ago. Ideally, this should document should cause anyone who is teaching in one of those institutions, one of those classes, to think about how they are going to meet those first presidency objectives. Um, I can't vouch for anybody else, but it has certainly changed the way I've thought about it and how I've tried to teach the course. Yeah, that second one would be... I mean, I guess somehow you are instilling through your instruction. I mean... Well, for me, I, I have told my class, mm-hmm. I can't test you on your lifeline commitment. I can test you on your commitment that you've made to keep the honor code and the dress and grooming standards. Mm-hmm. So that's actually an element in my course and... Um, but that's that's something I can test them on. Yeah. And I told them, look, you all made this commitment. It should be the easiest five points you get at the university. <laughs> how many how many students have you got, John? Fifty eight. Fifty eight. Is it one section? In one section. Yeah. It's, two hours a week? Yep. Okay. Well that that's two hours in class. Yeah. Outside well, of, of class. Course, of course. I remember um, as a freshman taking Book of Mormon from George Pace, um, one semester anyway, and I had a very embarrassing moment there uh, in front of everybody um, involving a test. Well, so yeah, I yeah, I like George Pace. Um, he was great. Yeah, I never had a classroom him, but mm-hmm. he was great and. Exhibited admirable grace under fire. Yeah, but yeah, I wasn't going to talk about that. No, but, I'm, I'm just, just saying, but I will tell you, I'm his, impressed his with ability his to reach that. young people. Yeah. at that age was incredible, and I really enjoyed his class. Uh, very different style from Hugh Nibley. <laughs> very different style from yeah. Hugh Nibley. Oh yes, yes, so, and 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 I think that illustrates the point you brought up earlier about how different individuals, in some cases organizations, reach people at different levels. Yeah, and different yeah. stages, and what. Um, we saw this in one really dear um, institute instructor and who could work wonders with 12 to 14 years olds. It's just absolutely astounding to see him work at that level. Um, some of the other target audiences, maybe not so well, but boy, you stick him in front of that, and he was mm-hmm. amazing. And and so there are different different people have different abilities to reach different groups, and that's maybe one of the reasons why we have twelve apostles. Um, yeah, 
you know. Yeah, I think so. Well, or 15. I mean, I was going to say, I'm, <laughs> I wouldn't presume to say why, but you're, it's good to say maybe. One reason, right? <laughs> exactly. One reason. Not, exactly. Not the only reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks, John. I appreciate that. We'll, uh, we'll learn more at the end of the semester after you've kind of evaluated about how that went. So is it the whole year that you're doing it? Two semesters? Uh, no, I'm just doing one semester. Just one semester. So and it's just uh, Nephi to... Alma? First Nephi to Alma 29. Okay. I'm glad we get Alma 29. There's this wonderful verse in there that um, Elder Maxwell uh, highlighted that helps us understand the good in other religions and other faiths and the good that they do and um, and how we should approach them. And so I'm... I'm thrilled I get to do that verse. And uh, if anybody's interested, you can go to scriptures.byu.edu, plug in Alma 29, and look for what, because they list all of them in conference talks. It was in a conference talks. Look up what Elder Maxwell said about it. Another one of those tools that helps us. You know, Kevin, uh, you have an article you've been working on for a while for Interpreter that's just about ready to come out. Is that right? Yeah. The the first part of it should be out in uh, in about a month or so. Okay. And this is my uh, 20 Years After Paradigms Regained article. Um, Part one, the ongoing plain and precious significance of Margaret Parker's scholarship for Latter-day Saint studies. And, and you finally got it past the the peer reviews. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, if it's coming out yeah. in a month, we're going to have to have you on the program yeah, to right. talk about we it. Will. Yeah, yeah. We I will. think I can make it. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, and and I've got something that uh, project my father in law and I have been working on for a while. I've sent both of you. Um, should be available from Amazon in a couple of weeks. It's called the uh, Temple Pathway to Heaven. And as John was mentioning, we all have our different levels. This is kind of a hit and miss. It's uh, got lower level stuff and maybe some stuff that's a little higher. Well, well, we'll have to wait. And uh, we will. I will suspend judgment until I've had a chance to digest it. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, we uh, will encourage you to do that. And in the meantime, we want to uh, thank you for listening to this first hour of our program. We will be right back in a few minutes after a break and we will take up our come follow me segment which tonight will be the books of amos and obadiah so we'll be discussing more about prophets and apostasy as well as uh, saviors on mount zion so we want to thank you for listening and we'll be right back please stay tuned Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the second half of our interpreter broadcast this evening uh, with my co-hosts, Kevin Christensen and John Gee. Good evening, Kevin. Good evening, John. Good evening. Yeah, good evening. 
And uh, for the second hour, of course, we're doing a uh, follow-up on our Come Follow Me presentations from the Interpreter Foundation. And uh, just want to announce that if you are interested, the Interpreter Foundation-sponsored cruise uh, to Turkey is uh, filling up. That'll be in October. And so if you want more information about that, I suggest that you go to Bountiful Travel and look up the Bible tour there and get as much information and sign up if you can, because that's going to be fantastic. There's a lot of the New Testament that took place there, as John was mentioning in our last hour. We also want to remind you that on November 4th and 5th, we're going to have the 6th Matthew B. Brown Temple on Mount Zion seminar, sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation. Uh, keynote speakers will be Wilford Griggs and Margaret Barker and Samuel Zinner. Now, some of those will be virtual presentations. On Friday night, the 4th, Wilford Griggs' presentation about the temple in early Christianity will be um, a virtual one. And then Saturday, you can join virtually or you can attend in person. Uh, just go to the Interpreter Foundation website and look that up. So... Gentlemen, tonight we have the uh, books of Amos and Obadiah. And, uh, you know, Amos, he, he's, he, he's the contemporary with Isaiah, if I've got that right. On the early side. So in some ways, um, if we're looking at prophetic books in the Old Testament, so books written by prophets, after Moses and after Samuel— Amos is the earliest. Earlier than Isaiah. Yeah, he's. they overlap, but they overlap. The end of Amos overlaps the beginning of Isaiah. Okay. So Amos comes early. And, and they're not sure about Obadiah at all. Uh, yeah, Obadiah, we don't know anything about when he lives – other than it's before the destruction of Jerusalem. Yes. Well, it's and actually, after and after he David. talks about the destru- Well, he talks about the destruction of the temple and how Edom kind of stood by, but it's about that time. Yeah. So he's he's less uh, he's harder to pin down than Amos. Mm-hmm. So, Kevin, when we talk about Amos, what what are the things in that book that stand out to you? Well, in my, uh, I got the marking that I put in there in my, when I was on my mission, uh, Amos 3 7, (laughs) surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth a secret to his servants, the prophets. And the other one is uh, about the, behold the day, it's in in. Chapter 8, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord, and they shall wander from sea to sea, and from north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro, and seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. So those are the those are the oldest markings that I've got in that chapter. I've got a few others since then, but those are the ones that we most know about, and of course those are the ones that the Gospel Doctrine lesson will focus on, too. You know, the the apostasy one reminded me of another project. So in the last hour, we you know we were talking with John about a a project he'd been involved in with the uh, Book of Mormon names, but there was also a project that 
I think Farms did several years ago, and you participated, John, on the Great Apostasy. Uh, yeah, well, we so starting in about uh, two thousand, uh, we met once a week for about two years, and what they wanted to do was to test the Stephen Robinson's hypothesis that uh, Greek philosophy had had corrupted the church. So we were systematically reading through. Um, the uh, the early church fathers, and we had Dan Graham and Jim Seabach, who both philosophy professors, both specialists in Greek philosophy, um, reading along with us. And I can't remember all who was involved because it mm-hmm. it rotated over time. It, Noel Reynolds organized it. But one of the things that I remember Dan Graham and Jim Seabach saying very clearly is, look, you don't get anything resembling Greek philosophy until maybe Justin Martyr, mid-second century. And by that time, they're already into the apostasy. So Greek philosophy isn't the engine of philosophy, or at least not the initial engine of it. Uh, You mean the apostasy. Of the apostasy. It comes in later, and it comes in uh, sort of to try to shore up Christianity after it's already apostatized. And that was – so we made this case in a book that was published by Farms called Early Christians in Disarray. Yeah. And great uh, cover by the brilliant way. book. Yeah, I it was a great it. cover. It was um, it was a great book. Um, and oddly enough, um, there are people who probably took more um, took more umbrage at uh, Robinson's hypothesis, but they've mainly taken aim at uh, that book. And uh, my own contribution had to deal with um, plain and precious things being taken out and pointing out that the accusation of corruption of the text come from all angles in the second century, and for the most part, our earliest manuscript come from the third. Mm-hmm. So after and in the third century, accusations about corruption have largely died down, and there's still a few of them in the early third century. But after that, they don't accuse people of corrupting the text. But all these corruptions come largely before our manuscripts, and so the manuscripts that we have are don't put us in a good position to see what the manuscripts were like in the first century. Mm-hmm. So, but there is a clearly the the famine in the land. Uh, I wanted to go back and and do the Amos three seven and point out, and, and I'm not the first to point this out. Um, I can't remember who has, but multiple people has. When it says that the Lord God doeth nothing, but He revealeth His secret, that secret is um, sod. And this is a Hebrew word that tends to be a reference to a heavenly council that's held where they discuss matters. Yeah, um, Bill Hamlin. 
Bill Hamlin did did work did on it about um, that for Interpreter, I think. Yes, and uh, mm-hmm. David yep. Bakovoy, I think, one of the yes. first article in Interpreter was on this. Yes, subject. the Divine Council. Yeah. So th- this is what they're talking about. There is that he not he revealed this his secret, but in this case, it's his counsel to his servants, the prophet, and what he expect the results of the heavenly council, and that's what's uh, he. That's what's given to the prophets to proclaim, and and especially if we remember that the term prophet in the Old Testament, it's Hebrew navi and comes from a verb meaning to speak or to call forth. But if you remember that passage in the Pentateuch where the Lord says that Moses will be like a god and Aaron will be his prophet. Yeah. But the term prophet there is spokesman, and the Greek term for prophet means spokesman. Mm-hmm. So this is a spokesman for God. In this case, the result of the divine counsel that God presides over comes to the prophet, and the prophet announces it to the people. Mm-hmm. And Aaron was the mouthpiece by which that happened. Well, in, in, in Moses' day, Aaron serves as the Navi for Moses, but in the spokesman but in in old testament terms the prophet is the navi the spokesman for god yes and i think that's a, an understanding that fits very comfortably in with the understandings latter day saints have is for prophets um you know we don't worship the prophet but he is god's spokesman on earth and uh we do would do well to listen to what he tells us it's always fascinating to me and Kevin, I'm I'm sure you. I'm, I'm curious about this, where you're so far away from the Wasatch Front, as you were mentioning earlier. You don't always get in the loop on all of these things. Is it just me, or is is President Nelson's message at a different level, maybe than some of the other prophets? Although every prophet, in my experience, speaks to our time. Now, well, one of the things that was most, uh, remains most amazing was, you know, the conference before uh, the pandemic hit and the kinds of things that were being discussed and prepared in the conferences before that. And we just felt like that, you know, he was setting us up for something that came and then we got hit by this. And and I recently even uh, read an interview where someone was talking about uh, interviewing President Nelson and talking about his process of revelation. And how he talked about there was a talk about you know reading the scriptures and, and writing down in your journal the thoughts that come to your mind uh, as you read the scriptures, as you pray, as you ponder the scriptures, and and the, the between the talk and between what he described, uh, what the interview described as the process of revelation that he reports, uh, it's the same thing. He's he's wanting us to do that kind of thing ourselves, you know, to be able to tap into the spirit. And there, um, there are more dramatic instances, you know, that, you know, the, like the count, the council vision saw it, uh, that John was talking about and that, that Amos is talking about, and that there's, you know, lots of references to that, that we don't re- recognize as such unless we dip into some of the scholarship, but it, it, it's a, it's a theme and it's a crucial thing. And it, it of course resonate, resonates really well with, you know the the things that we have in our scriptures, you know the LDS scriptures, uh, but it's just 
you know, get into this, the, the deliberations of the council, get the big plan, the big picture that's going on, get the, the whole plan of salvation. That's going to be discussed there. And, you know, that becomes, in other parts of the scripture, that's a test for a prophet. This, you know, Jeremiah has that. That's, you know, that if, if God's taken you into his council, he's going to tell you to repent. <laughs> that's one of the Maybe ways. Maybe that's why the people don't want to listen to the prophet. Yeah, they they want someone who's going to tell them, you know, everything's okay. Well, you know, that's what on doing what. That's what Samuel Lamanite says is, you know, if you if you have somebody that that will tell you the word of the Lord, you're going to persecute him. And if you have somebody who tells you to just go ahead and and uh, do those things you want to do anyway, then you'll give him money and say he's a prophet. The people have itching yeah. ears. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it also f- comes down to when we talk about uh, the famine in the land in Amos 8, uh, verse 11, uh, it says not just a famine of bread or water, but hearing the words of the Lord. Well, the, the term there, Shema, means not only to hear, but also to obey. It's a famine of obedience as, mu- well, as well as hearing. Well, we can hear the words of the prophet in numerous ways. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I I was traveling during general conference, and I could hear the whole thing. And when uh, I left one radio station, I could pick up another radio station, or I could put it on my phone, or I could even go back and listen to it on YouTube. There were so many ways I could get the the talks almost immediately. It was incredible to me. The church has done an amazing job. So you think just back a few years, say 10 years ago, when they were first putting them up on YouTube. You, you, and had, to, you had to wait it was a till week Wednesday. Well, you had to wait Every till Wednesday before they came on print, and you'd be sitting here going, what am I supposed to do between Sunday and Wednesday? I, 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 I'm lost. Well, or they, but it's up almost immediately now. Oh, yeah. It's just in, yeah. incredible. In fact, we um, – I'd been flying in on the plane and missed the morning session, and but caught it the next day, or the cut the first half of it the next day, and streaming it over the phone. Yeah, and 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 well, was and able to listen to some of it. Here's another thing: we were studying one of the talks from April, and I'm embarrassed to say that in reading the talk which I'd listened to a couple of times, all of a sudden a footnote pops out. And we're talking about it in, you know, the Elders Quorum. And, and he says, I don't know who wrote this footnote. And I'm sitting here thinking, uh, Elder Christofferson wrote that footnote. It's his footnote. Do we go back and read the talks? Because the talks are footnoted by the brethren themselves. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I I listen to the talks and just listen and listen, and then I forget to go back and read them the way we used to when the ensign came every, you know, so often. And uh, I think we need to go back and do that because there's things even in the footnotes, and I'm kicking myself a bit because I always read the footnotes. As as I was pointing out to John earlier on the book we just got – I go through the bibliography and the footnotes first thing before I even read the book, and then by then I pretty much know what's in it. And, and I, um, you know, I check for years. I check Nibley's footnotes. So, yeah, I I go to the footnotes very quickly too. I remember one back in 
1984, maybe 1985, um, President Nelson mentioned one time, he says, this appears not once in the scriptures, but 84 times. And then if you looked, he footnoted it and had all 84 times listed. (laughs) Well, thankfully, in his Let God Prevail talk, he said, in my 800 talks, I've talked about Israel 374. Thankfully, he didn't list all of those, although I almost wish he had because that's an important subject. But, Kevin, are you able out there to get that much of the prophet's words? Uh, well, yeah, for our TV, we've got the BYU uh, app or and also YouTube. So for this conference, we kind of alternated between those. So we were able to, to get all of the sessions of the conference and watch them together. And then, of course, uh, I use LDS.org and the, um, the website frequently in, in the, when I'm doing my research because it's a convenient way to get the scriptures online, amongst other things. And we've got on our phones. We have the LDS uh, app, which has you know the library and the Sunday yep. school lessons and all this other stuff. So yeah, it's it's astonishing to me how convenient it all is. <laughs> well, for the it's longest like time, this. I have my printed scriptures, and I loved marking them. And I thought I'm never going to go to my phone. And now I use my phone almost exclusively because of the electronic ability to put notes in it. So I can put an incredible amount of material everywhere, and by using the LDS Tools app, it just synchronizes it. Well, you, you look at – so all of this uh, – all of this at, for a time back in the day lived in places where – in order to get general conference, well, you had to go. To you the had church. to make a trip to the stake center, yes. which could be quite a ways, mm-hmm. and fifty and, miles. Yeah, yeah. It depends on where, where you, you lived were. and and the circumstances. But you had to you had to make a real effort to go to conference, and oftentimes you didn't have time between the sessions to go home. And back. Oh yeah, you'd have a. That was that was a. Oh yeah, so those were great. Yeah, so um, the convenience of it now. um, I've listened to General Conference um, on occasion live in Europe, and it used to be in in Europe. I remember one time we went. We were in May, and this was years and years ago, and we were visiting a ward in Germany, and what they were doing was listening to the tapes that they'd just gotten from Mm -hmm. General Conference the month month before. before. They'd finally got the tapes, and so for priesthood meeting, it was listening to as many talks as they could fit in. Yeah. And now just how how much more available it is. Uh, we're not having – we don't have a famine in of, hearing of the being word of the a Lord, Lord, but we might have I a famine. I was going to say, yeah, and, do, do you feel that it. where you are, Kevin, that, that really the famine is in the obedience of the word? Uh, yeah, there's that. There's Well, there's the famous saying from 
you know, Isaiah about having ears but you can't hear. And you talk about you know, there's more to hearing. And I think, uh, like Lewis Midgley wrote some really good articles on remembrance and that that was a lot more active than just having it in mind. It's you know, demonstrated through action. So if, if we've got eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to turn, then that should be an active demonstration. It's, you know, it's a, it's a church not of, you know, nodding silently in agreement, but it's a church of wholehearted, you know, embracing this whole covenant lifestyle and community uh, commitment and, and bearing one another's burdens and that, that they may be light and, and, you know, seeking and feasting upon the words of Christ every chance we can, we get and, and acting out. So it's, it's not a passive thing for us. It should be a demonstration. So how do we tie the two together? The counsel, the divine counsel through the word of the prophet, and then we hear it, but then we've got a famine in obedience. How can we, how can we overcome that? Well, we got or to do it, it on an, in an individual basis. And I think this is one of the things that the brethren have been saying about conference in, in recent years. Don't, and it makes sense now. They say, don't take notes about what's said. Because, you know, in a couple of days, you can have the transcripts, you can go back and listen to it. Don't take notes on what is said. Take notes on the inspiration you get. So, and you can sit through um, a talk and not get any inspiration. And you get another talk and you get this, I really need to do X. I really need to change how I deal with that. And so you're, they say, take notes on that. Take notes on the promptings you receive. And being able to take notes on them and then act on them gives us a way to improve that famine of obedience because that will tell us the things that we need to work on. You know, there there may be something in there may be something in conference a talk that you, th- you say, well, I actually am doing okay on that, but you won't be able to say that for all of them, and the Holy Ghost can let you know which is the one you need to work on, and uh, and more, and and so taking notes on that. And and mm-hmm. acting on it. That's the then acting on it is the hard thing. Yeah. Are there are there things that we can do, Kevin and John, that will help us transfer that to others? I mean, that that's a good point, John. Where we we should be feeling the spirit as opposed to worrying about the notes because they'll be available to us in multiple forms. But how do we transfer that to others? through the missionary effort or through something else. Is there is there something that we can do specifically that will help us do that? Well, we're told specifically to let our light so shine before men, you know, that they can see our good works and rejoice. And that's really all, you know, we can work through persuasion and example and and participation in, in, our, in our individual presence and in our individual, you know, taking as much light as we can into ourselves. And just let our demonstration on our love of the gospel um, 
show up so that other people see it. You know, it's a, and that can be uh, you know, just to children. You know, it, it affected me as a child that when conference came around, you know, TVs and the radios went on in every room in the house. You could hear conference you know, on conference, uh, conference Sundays twice a year. And so I, and I got familiar with the names and the, you know, the manner of speaking of, of the, all of the apostles and a lot of the seventies in those days. And, and just could see the reverence that my parents had for that. And that, so that sets an example for us. And so as we get older, we're, you know, we, we took an interest. We got our own testimonies. We went on missions. We married in the temple. We, we, and so I can think of, uh, I, I think about when I went to my grandma's funeral, you know, she was, uh, she lived in Cleveland, Utah. It's just a little town, you know, in uh, in Emory County. And uh, but yet, I could look at my grandma's influence as quite literally having gone around the world through her children and her grandchildren and her great grandchildren. And then it's, this is continuing on. Just her, we could tell that she loved the gospel. And just as an individual, wherever a person is, whatever they're doing, you know. I mean, she worked. Uh, she worked in the school kitchen and she worked at the post office in this little teeny town. And, and, you know, she was widowed for a long time when, you know, grandpa Harry uh, died. And, but yet just where she was living the gospel, she had an influence that clearly, you know, went with all of those that she affected. So just wherever we are, we do have the opportunity to do that. And, our love of the gospel will make a difference because we are in a society and people are going to see us. Yeah, I think also we shouldn't... So when we're talking about receiving revelation, sometimes the revelation you receive in the middle of conference is, I need to talk to so-and-so. And that allows... And if you follow through on that, that allows that influence to expand and to impact someone else's life. And uh, the Brethren have talked about this for years, about the need to to just talk to people, and that if you talk with them and you let the— and you're listening to the Spirit at all, it can prompt you what to say— and you don't know the influence that that can have. Um, with a, a little bit of time here, we wanted to move into some of the other parts of Isaiah, maybe some of, or of Amos, some of the lesser-known ones. Um, one of the things that I think is telling here is in Amos 7. So Amos is going up into the northern kingdom of Israel, and he uh, and they complain about him because they, uh, so it says that Amaziah the priest sent to the king of Israel saying, uh, we've got Amos and he's a problem and the land is not able to bear all his words. And he's prophesying evil against this. And and he tells him, you need to go back to Ju- Judah and, and prophesy there. Um, but this is, you know, 
but we don't recognize you can be a prophet down in in Judah and Amos's response was um I wasn't a prophet I wasn't a pro- son of a prophet uh I was a herdsman and the Lord said prophesy against Israel and and so he prophesies even more evil against Israel um So, Kevin, do you see that sort of um, courage, or you know, some people might call it foolhardiness? Do you see that sort of courage today, where people are somebody's willing to take a stand for the church and for the word of the Lord, um, where it's not popular? Yeah, I think I, mean, I, I think clearly, like with something like the the proclamation on the family, you know, that gets brought up as something that's saying these are our standards, and and we are speaking in the name of the Lord for this. Just and just when uh, some of the testimonies in conference, uh, you know, about speaking to kings, literally speaking to kings and sharing the testimony of the Book of Mormon, you know, in situations there were a couple of talks uh, where that kind of experience came out and it was and it was done um in plain humility you could tell that there was a certain amount of insecurity and being prodded by the spirit and just saying okay i'm not going to do this because i really want to but because i feel that the spirit is prompting me to do this and i've learned to obey the spirit and to see that it for them it becomes a positive experience and so i think for each of us uh when we look at the amount of courage that it takes, say, for someone like Amos, or if we look at the Book of Mormon, especially someone like Abinadi, when things are going to go south very quickly for him. But uh, there's the great uh, passage in Jeremiah where Jeremiah talks about he, he, you know, that he's he says that he he wanted to to be quiet, but he says that the Lord, the Spirit of God, was like a fire in my bones, and I could not forbear. I mean, there's that that sense sometimes where we have to speak. We have to say something. We have to, you know, whether that's just uh, raising our hands to say something or extending our hand to lift someone. You know, it can be the same kind of courage, the same you know, willingness to stand up and, and you know answer the questions. You know, just there was a, one of the talks a person was you know went to a new school and somebody said, "Are you a Mormon?" And yep. To be able to do that sometimes, uh, to, to be able to, to stand up and be counted, to be able to, to say, yeah, these are my standards, this is my church, this is my testimony. Yes, I really believe this stuff. You know, I, I think Daniel Peterson tells the story of, you know, had a, some, some people and they're asking him about the LDS beliefs and says, this is believed? You know, this incredulity about some of it. I had a, a guy in California once said to me, uh, how can you be a Mormon and intellectual? Or in a, another one who had you know, had a faith crisis and left the church, he said, how can you know what you know and believe what you believe? You know, and I think those are very good questions, but uh, it's to be able to answer them and to be willing to answer them in, a, in as kind and loving way as, as possible. It's our opportunities to do this, to, to meet the moment, whether it's a large moment or a small one, 
I think that's that's what God really wants us to do is to just meet the moment with faith. And um, I think of uh, a blog post that you wrote <laughs> that I really liked, where you talked about standing as witnesses of Christ at all times and all places and all things, instead of not some places and sometimes and some things, but all of them. You know, and that's that's something that we that, uh, we've been asked to do. To, you know, that's. Our baptism, our taking that his name upon ourselves and acting as his representatives, having the courage to do that is kind of why we're here. Well, okay, so that's, and these are all really good points. Um, so the question that kind of comes up is, uh, I'm sure there are many of our listeners who are thinking, yeah, this is great, I'm glad somebody can do this, but I could never do that. How do you get the courage to do something like what Amos did? How do you get to that point? You know, because a lot of people are shy. They, you know, about half of them are introverts. Uh, they don't particularly like talking to strangers. Um, and, you know, some of them are really concerned as Elder Maxwell says, about being uh, thrust out of the secular synagogue. Uh, so how do we get the, the courage, develop that courage that Amos has? What if you don't feel like you've got that fire in the bones from Jeremiah? How do you develop it? Well, we look at role models a lot of times. It's just you look at someone who does, and, and you, you look at another life, where this plays out. You know, you read the story of Amos. You read the story of Joseph Smith. You, you read, you listen to the talks and conference where these people talk about their experience in very personal and specific terms about how they were in a situation that was thrust upon them where they were invited to stand up and be counted, to be able to say, yes, I'm LDS. Yes, I believe these things. Uh, yes, I have this testimony. And to have those stories in mind as models so instead of the, the model being, well, I'm just going to keep a low, profile, low profile and try not to attract any attention to myself, or I'm just kind of trying to blend in with the crowd, but, you know, to think of, of, you know, this is part of the hero's journey. You know, the, uh, the heroes are those who face their fears. And if we have a fear of standing up and be counted, well, that's, then we're called upon to, to be heroes. And, uh, Villains, uh, Joseph Campbell pointed this out, that villains nurture their resentments. Heroes face their fears. Villains nurture their resentments. That makes all the difference. And, and to, to simply to stand up in a situation that's been called for. Um, you know, we, we had, you know, the, a few months ago we had, you know, the situation where someone who might not have been expected to do something at all brave, uh, we saw on television saying, I don't need a ticket, I need ammunition. And how that inspired you know, his nation to defend themselves against a, what looked like it was going to be a cakewalk for an invasion. But just, just someone rising to, the, to a moment, and it doesn't have to be a small moment. You know, Again, those stories in conference, these, these are just people saying, here I was doing this thing that 
you know, I, I was away at school or I was doing my job as a member of the church, or I was in just whatever situation they happened to be, they had an opportunity to simply respond with the testimony. And if we have those stories in our mind, you know, like they, they sang in Prita, then the same song they sing in primary, I will go, I will do. You know, and we look at these examples, we, we read the stories of the prophets and of Joseph Smith and of the pioneers rising to an occasion and meeting a moment and then seeing the, the consequences that come from it. I think of a passage early on in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord is talking to this very, very small group of saints. Let no one count these as small things, for there is much in futurity that depends on them. And it can just be those small things where you're prepared in that moment. And each successful experience is going to give you more courage. And everyone who sees that will, can gain courage from it. So it's a thing that can be contagious you know, in a positive way. It can be something that spreads uh, just through these little efforts that we make that, that someone else says, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Or I saw him do it. I want to do that. I want to be that kind of person who can do that, who can stand up and who can, who can say, yes, I'm LDS. Yes, I believe in Christ. Yes, I'm here to lend a hand. Yes, I'm here to, to make, you know, this, you know, speak out on this issue. Um, or here just to, to be in support of someone. Yeah, I, I heard a, a um, well, uh, I heard a good story on that, but I realized that it's probably not. Uh, I'm I haven't gotten permission to share it, so I'm I will have to save that for another time. But when you mentioned, you know, talking about like Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and all of that, uh, uh, not too long ago, I read a book on the, the standard book that all the screenwriters follow. And one of the things that uh, the person said is that the hero, uh, until the hero actually acts, it's all just set up. And that one of the things that makes the hero is that they actually make an active decision and act, make a decision and act on it that takes them out of the situation that was before and launches them on whatever character arc they're on but that applies to all of us as well um if we're if we're just passively floating through on whatever tide we're on uh and not acting then we haven't yet we haven't yet become the protagonist of our own story and so that you have to do something that you may not be, you may not feel ready for, uh, you may not feel qualified for, uh, but you do it anyway. And I remember one thing that uh, Elder Maxwell talking about new converts is, you know, they say they're, they feel inadequate. He says, and you can let them know that the sense of inadequacy never goes away. Um, and as an apostle, well, at the time he wasn't even an apostle yet, but uh, I've also heard members of the First Presidency say much the same thing, is 
we don't have to wait until we feel adequate for the task that we've been given before we act. Uh, because if we do, we'll never act. So um, I was also looking at uh, some passages in in Amos 5. Um where the Lord uh, tells them, uh, this is looking at uh, verse 12, I know your manifold transgression, your mighty sins, and they afflict the just, and um, tells them that in verse 14 that they should seek good and not evil that ye may live. And so the Lord God of hosts will be with you. Uh, hate the evil, love the good, and establish judgment in the gates. Uh, and it may be that the Lord of hosts will be gracious to those who are left, to the remnant of Joseph. Um, so what are your thoughts on how to seek good and not evil? Um, well, I think about the passages about hungering and thirsting after righteousness on one hand, and uh, Abraham, the book of Abraham starting out, I, Abraham, you know, wanting to be a greater follower of righteousness. And there's that, it, it's hungering and thirsting, it's that, you know, getting an appetite for it and liking the taste and wanting to fill something in our life with more of the good. There's, the, you know, the story of uh, Lehi, when he tastes the fruit of the tree of life, and he, it's delicious to him, and, and he wants to share it immediately. And there's that, so not only seeking the good, but sharing the, uh, the good. Um, and it's uh, that he may live, and so the Lord of hosts shall be with you. As you have spoken, there's that, you know, wanting to do good because. You know, to follow the example of Christ so that we can get, get close to him, as you know, Benjamin saying, How knoweth the master whom he hath not served? You know, to, to do these things, to think in terms of, of being part of the good thing. You know, there's a really chilling passage in Isaiah where it, he talks about he that departeth from evil become, must become a prey, you know, that, which is describing a dog eat dog society where everyone's out for themselves. And, you know, the, we have depictions of that kind of society where, you know, everyone is divided against everybody else and everyone sleeps on their swords and uh, that kind of society, then it, it becomes a nightmare. And it's the opposite of a Zion society where people are looking out for each other and caring for each other. But in a situation where, you know, it's not totally one way or the other, where we have a choice and we, we can, we want to pick what kind of society, what kind of person do we want to be? And, and, well, then how do I do good? You know, that, that question is, you know, it's just, I don't know everything. I, I'm, I'm not smart. I'm not a prophet. What can I do? And so I, I want to seek after those who do shine with that light and learn what I can from them and take it into my life and then practice it and then see what happens in my life as I practice it. Now, this is Alma talking to Corianne you know, about restoration. And he's speaking from experience. You know, you do good things and good things will, will, you know, eventually in, in due time return to you and you do bad things and eventually in due time they'll come back. So the word restoration more fully condemneth the sinner. 
you know, that he says, so all of this kind of information and examples and insight where we look at what's good, where we, you know, reading the stories in the scriptures, reading about the hero's journey in Joseph Campbell, reading about, you know, the, this call to adventure that happens in those stories. And also there's, there's always a part called the refusal of the call. You know, there's a part where, uh, in like, uh, when, uh, Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan Kenobi says, Luke, come with me and, you know, to Alderaan and learn the ways of the forest. And he says, I can't, I've got this life here. You know, so at times, in a lot of the stories, there, there's this initial, I can't let my life get disrupted that way. But at some point, we make the choice, you know, we, we, we put in our papers for a mission and we find ourselves, oh, I'm going to England, okay, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And uh, leave the country and there I am and, and I get out on the streets in England and I realize, I'm not here by myself. <laughs> Basically, just me and my companion were pretending to be missionaries. That's you know, it's what my wife Shauna said when she got to France. Here we are pretending to be missionaries, but you know, so we act the part for a while, and we 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 look at our, look up to our companion, and so we go here, we say this, we do this, and it's a bit scary, but we get better at it, and then we find ourselves in a situation where we've got an you know, a new, a new missionary to, to train. And we've got responsibility, so we've got something to live up to, and we take some courage from that. So it's it's a process that we all go through. This, this business about seeking the good and seeking not to do evil, it's, you know, we learn from our mistakes. We, you know, the, you know, the count in the Pearl of Great Price, we taste the bitter and the sweet, and we learn to treasure what is sweet and good, and we learn to avoid the other. You know, that's, that's this process of life is learning, repenting, continuous repentance every day. Well, I think President Nelson addressed that a little bit in conference. He was quoting President Benson and said, those who turn their life over to the Lord will find that he can make more of it than they can. Um, yeah. So that gives us a, 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 a process of turning over the Lord and watching and see what he makes of our life, which doesn't always mean it's going to be easy. But um, yeah. so a little earlier in Amos five, um, he talks about uh, those who turn judgment to wormwood, who leave righteousness in the earth, and and they he has this says this line in verse ten that seems to respond so much to people of, you know, both political persuasions in, at least in America, but is also more widespread than that. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly, where they don't want to hear, where people don't want to hear uh, what's uh, and they don't want to be corrected, and certainly don't want to be righteous. Um, right. They, they'd rather be self-righteous. Uh, so, um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's uh, that's an image that recurs in the scriptures in various places about uh, the one that reproveth and the gate they hate him. That's yeah, that's. Well, when I grew up, when I was, you know, very young kid, one of the books in the house is Profiles and Courage. And 
it was, you know, there's one of the stories in there is about Alexander Donathan, you know, defending Joseph Smith when the other people wanted to kill him, you know, and and, and the point is, is people that were rising to an occasion, you know, to, to do what is right or do what is easy, and it'd be easy to go along with the pressure, but with you do what is right, one of the things that does is that exposes the people who are uh, just going with the flow, doing what's easy, doing what's selfish, doing what's easy. It exposes them for what they are, and it's it's and that's shaming them in a way. Just to stand up and do the right thing, it's exposing the wrong for what it is in public. And there are people who really, really hate that because they just want things to go on the way they are. So it does take courage, and it it does. You know, there's a willingness. You know, if it's the right thing to do to be a Benedite, you know, you know, you stand up and you say the right thing. There's, you know, Jeremiah at times when you know he's he had a very difficult life in ministry, and uh, Lehi does when when he goes up. Uh, Joseph Smith does. Sam Smith goes on this mission, and it's hard, and he gets rejected everywhere he goes, and he comes back saying nobody wants the books. And he felt like a failure, but. And, and yet you look felt. at people like Brigham Young who came in from yeah. that initial tour where he was only able to sell one book. Yeah. But it was just, you know, the one book makes a difference. And so that it can be just that one moment, just that one person to stand up. Uh, this, this, um, these, uh, um, Gerard's uh, books on, on the, the cycles of violence, and he talks about the importance of, you know, the one who casts the first stone, or the one who, is, is to, he sets the example for the others, and sometimes the person can set an example of unrighteousness that then other people will follow, that, he, you know, he, uh, there are people out there who give other people permission, public example, that you can be this much of a louse and this much of a despicable person, this selfish and this corrupt, because everybody's doing it and everybody's corrupt and everybody's out for themselves, so what's you know? Let's not pretend otherwise. There's there's that element out there, but to stand, President Hinckley's saying, stand for something, stand up and be counted, stand up for a principle and do it in public because it's important, because it's hard. That's something that other people need, and it, it sometimes we, we need to see that in ourselves to be able to look in the mirror and say, you know, I may not be perfect, but that day I did the right thing. On this occasion, I did speak up on, you know, whether it's speaking up, speaking out, or reaching out. Any of those things can take a degree of courage. And that's what Jesus wants us to do, because that is what he did. Okay, well, we have just a, a few minutes left. Do you have any particular thoughts about Amos that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Just uh, when we think of that verse that we always use, surely the Lord God will do nothing but he revealeth his secret. Just that we see more in that, that we see that it's a reference to the Grand Council and the whole plan of salvation and the thing that is at the center of what makes us distinct. But there it is, and that's that there's more in that, that that can be, that's a, that's an, a window into heaven. <laughs> and, and we can take the treasure that's there and, and appreciate the depth and wealth of what we have in this restoration of the gospel. 
Well, I, one of the things I, I think about with, with Amos is that if you look at what he says about his biography, he was what most people would consider a nobody. He doesn't come yeah. from he doesn't come from a uh some sort of exalted ancestry uh other than you know generic children of Israel um and yet the lord is able to take him and make something out of him that we're reading him more than 2000 years later uh and closer to 3 that we're still reading about him uh that the Lord was able to make something of him because he was willing to to do what the Lord asked him to do. Um, he wasn't uh, somebody passed on to me recently. You know, the Lord actually this was in the um, the interpreter tenth anniversary uh, meeting. The Lord doesn't need us to be popular. He needs us to do his will. And that's what Amos was had done, and that's why all these years later uh, we're still studying him and still finding things of value in what he told people many, many years ago. And we're uh, that's one of the, the great things that we get to study about people like Amos uh, in Come Follow Me uh, much later, uh, or, you know, every four years we get to study somebody like Amos, and we're constantly looking back at the scriptures that give us an enlarged view of things. Um, Well, for... um, for Terry Hutchison and... Uh, Kevin Christensen, this is John Gee, uh, and we're sign off for Interpreter Radio, and thank you so much for joining us.